World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson. This is my World War II Project. Uh, be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. That is where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. All of these interviews can be found at my website, americhicks.com, and they can be shared with others. So be sure and do that. Uh, This show precipitated from a trip that uh, I took uh, with Molly uh, in 2016 to Normandy uh, with four D-Day veterans. And we came back realizing that these stories needed to be told. And hence, the World War II project was born. I've got on the line with me John Coates, who is a World War II veteran. He was a medic with the 82nd Airborne. Welcome, John Coates. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, tell me exactly the division, uh, who you were associated with during World War II. You mean in uh, Europe? Yeah, like the 508th uh, Parachute Regiment, right? Yes, the... uh I was with the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment. I joined them uh, after they returned from Normandy in Nottingham, England. And we did some training up through September, to September where we, uh, we dropped in to Holland in, in Operation Market Garden. Okay, and you were part of the 82nd Airborne and C Company as well, right? C Company, well, yes. Okay, great. I'm still learning how to ask that question exactly, John, so that I get all of that in the right order. So what would the, per- what would the well, right order be? Hold on just a minute. I, I was in Holland. I was with headquarters first uh, mortar platoon. Okay. I was assigned to C Company in the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. Okay, very, very, very good. So, okay, John, let's let's start really more at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in uh, uh, Charlottesville and Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. And where were you when you heard that, world, or that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Repeat that, please. Where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? I was uh, at Fortress Monroe, Virginia. Uh, that's near Hampton. What went through your mind when you heard that, John? Oh, m- many things. I, I was concerned uh, right away, of course. We knew that there was problems with the Japanese. And uh, personally, I felt the next invasion would be on the West Coast. And you, you felt that that was a real possibility that the Japanese would invade from the West Coast, and a lot of people did, didn't they? Yes, they did. Okay, so how old were you then in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed? 41. I was uh, 16, just about to be 17. And I was thinking about joining the Marine Corps almost right away. (laughs) At the age of 16. So when did you enter the service? I entered the service on February 6, 1943. And so you were probably, what, 18? I had just turned 18, yes. Okay. And you joined the Army, not the Marines. I was drafted because I had a problem. Uh, I, I finally passed the physical with the Marine Corps in December of '42, and I couldn't attend because of a strep throat. I was bedridden, and so I was drafted. I got a telephone call on the 5th of February, 7 p.m., to report for a physical in the Richmond Armory, and. Uh, uh, that evening on the 6th, I was sworn into the Army. <laughs> wow, that's pretty quick. So you're in the Army now. Astounding. Tell me, where did you go from there for basic training? 
uh, basic training to Camp Pickett, Virginia. They, uh, I got medical basic. And any reason why you ended up in medical basic to become a medic? Uh, not to my knowledge. I, I, it might have been IQ related. I don't know that. Okay, and so you became a medic then, which yes. uh, explains to our listeners what a medic does, what a combat medic, uh, what your responsibilities are. Well, the combat medic uh, tra- travels with a company or platoon, and he's, he travels with the infantry, infantrymen and... Uh, Anytime there's an injury of any type, uh, the medic takes care of it, no matter whether it's under fire or just casual. So how many battles were you involved with then, John? How many? I was I was at two, uh, one in Market Garden in Holland and the other in the Battle of the Bulge. Okay, and you not only were a combat medic, but you were also a paratrooper. How did yes. you end up being a paratrooper? I uh, well, what happened was that in pursuing the um, medical training part, after basic training, I got uh, was sent to Lawson General Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, to get advanced medical training. And after that, I was sent to for assignment to Finney General Hospital in Thomasville, Georgia which I could have set out the war, and that was not my intention. And the only way that I could uh, get out of that situation was to join the Airborne, which I did. Wow, so you did not want to stay stay stateside. You wanted to get into the fight? Exactly. Wow. Okay, so you joined the Airborne. Let's back up just a little bit. What was basic training like then? Tell us about that. Uh, basic training was, uh, you know, all of us got physical conditioning, which uh, was uh, kind of a moderate thing, not near as severe as with the Airborne, but uh, it, it got us in shape. In addition, we had we had classes, medical classes. And uh, there was a lot of repetition in the teaching, you know, to make sure that everybody grasped everything that was presented. I had no trouble with that. Okay. Then, uh, so you decide to get in, uh, join the Airborne. The training for that was uh, more significant. Tell us about that. Repeat that, please. What was your Airborne training like? Uh, At uh, Fort Benning. Okay. And what, uh, what was that like? Uh, training to be a paratrooper? Well, I, the best way I can describe it was the first day. Okay. And that had to do with, in addition to the side straddle hops and uh, arm twirls, you know, holding your arms parallel for for a half hour or so, uh, we, had, we did 400 deep knee bends, and then we went on a run for nine miles without stopping. <laughs> and uh, I guess I did better than most, but uh, it was it was pretty tough on all of us. And the objective was to make the weak ones quit. How and many? I, sus- I suspect about a third of us got through. Goodness, yeah. Um, <laughs> only the best of the best, and of course. The 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne is so revered for what was done at Normandy and throughout Europe. And uh, you were uh, a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne, so you've gotten through your first day. 400 deep knee bends, nine miles of uh, without stopping. That's pretty amazing. So you continue on. Is there anything else you want to tell us about airborne training? Well, not, not offhand. I never have thought too much about it. It's... Uh it was, uh, they tried to make it as tough as they could, you know, things like uh, if you were, and they made a game of it too, if you were double-timing, which was all the time, they would 
deliberately changed step, and uh, if you didn't pick that up right away, you had to drop out and do 40 push-ups and catch up with the platoon. Okay. And But it was a game. It was uh, all intended to make it difficult for you and uh, see how tough you were physically and mentally. And uh, that's the, the other things I think about it. And, and of course, uh, the, the first week was all physical. The second week uh, had to do with uh, learning how to fall properly and how to jump out of mock uh, groups to, uh, to, you know, to get the proper uh, plane exit, that sort of thing, and how to land properly. In, so and uh, and then we went to the towers, uh, 34-foot towers, you know, in harnesses, mm-hmm. riding down cables into a large sawdust uh, pile. And uh, others where we would ride down a cable and uh, not knowing when would be released, and we had to fall properly to, you know, to properly fall to prevent injury. Uh, all kinds of training like that just to make sure that uh, you're in control of yourself at all times. So, John, how many jumps total did you do then? I, you mean uh, total in the Army? Yes. A uh, ten. Okay. What was that first one like? Uh, kind of exhilarating. <laughs> I was third man, and before I knew it, I was there was nobody in front of me, and out I went. And uh, it wasn't long that I was, with all that noise of the airplane and everything, and then by the time the chute opened, it was just absolute quiet. That was exhilaration, absolutely, especially in the first jump. Okay. So you did two combat jumps. Were all the other jumps then for training? I only had one combat jump. That was Operation Market Garden in Holland. The Battle of the Bulge, we uh, were in Army Reserve at the, at the beginning because we had just gotten back from Holland into France, and uh, we were refitting and getting our replacements and all of that when the, when the uh, German breakthrough began in the Battle of the Bulge. And we got on trucks. The 82nd Division uh, was in the lead in front of the 101st, and we arrived in Bastogne first with the, with the 101st behind us. And General Gavin, who was in, in charge since uh, the 18th Airborne Corps commander uh, and uh, the 101st commanders were in Washington, uh, General McAuliffe was, uh, was system commander in the 101st, General Gavin took over the 18th Corps and uh, was already commander of the 82nd Airborne Division. He decided that the uh, 101st would stay in Bastogne and the 82nd would move up into the northern part of the salient, which we did. Okay, and was the fighting fierce? The fighting was, was more fierce in the Battle of the Bulge than it was in Holland. Well, let's back up just a little bit then. Um, I want to find out you have completed your basic training, and uh, when I chatted with you the other day, you would mentioned something about an experimental jump out of a glider. So was that yes, something uh, in training? My, my initial assignment was with the 551st uh, Parachute re- uh, Battalion, And uh, we were stationed at Camp McCall, North Carolina. And uh, there was a lot of experimentation going on to help us to use the airborne troops. And uh, the idea was to get as many troops on the ground as possible. And they considered gliders, a pair of gliders being pulled, being towed by one plane to see if it was uh, practical to uh, get more troops on the ground uh, faster. And uh, so we, they set up this experiment. There was eight, eight men per glider and uh, four 
the two openings, one on either side of, of, of the um, fuselage. Half of it dropped out on the left side, the other half dropped out on the right side. And uh, it evidently was proved unfeasible because it, the uh, concept was never seriously considered. Well, and it seems to me like it would be pretty tricky to actually have two gliders behind a plane at the same time. Well, n- not too much. Uh, they, they, they were partially steered by, the, by pilots, and they, they weren't close together. Okay. Okay, so were you scared during that uh, experimental uh, jump from a glider? Uh, well, uh, I don't remember being scared. Do you th- were you ever scared when you jumped, would you say, John Coates? Oh, I might have been a little nervous, but fear. <laughs> I've gotten past that. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true. Uh, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We are talking with World War II veteran John Coates. He was with the 82nd Airborne 508th Parachute Regiment, and he was a combat medic. And uh, we're going to go to break here in just a minute. Before we do that, though, uh, Hooters Restaurants is your sports headquarters. The Super Bowl is over. It's time to focus on the Nuggets and the Avs. And March Madness is right around the corner. And I love March Madness because I'm a University of Kansas basketball fan. Hooters uh, specials start at $10 for a draft and 10 boneless wings. And did you know that Hooters wings can fly? You can have them delivered right to your front door. When I have the girls over on Wednesday nights, we order Hooters new smoked wings. They're delicious and only half the calories. And the girls love them. So order Hooters wings to go or have them delivered right to your front door. For more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com and let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. We are talking with World War II veteran John Coates. We will be right back. Okay, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. This is a show that precipitated uh, on a trip that I took with a group in 2016 with four D-Day veterans to Normandy. Uh, Came back and realized how important it is to capture these stories, and it is such an honor to talk with these men and women that served in World War II. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, as well as the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. We have on the line with us John Coates. Uh, he was a combat medic with the 82nd Airborne and talking about his experiences in World War II. Uh, so, John, you did actually 10 jumps, one combat jump. Let's talk about that. That was jumping in at Market Garden. So explain what that battle was exactly, and then let's talk about the jump. Okay. You, you want me to go ahead? Yes, please go ahead. Well, uh, it was on a uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, I guess around uh, 3 o'clock we dropped into Nijmegen. And uh, I was with, of course, with the 1st Battalion. And our assignment was to uh, go towards the bridge across the Wall River, uh, which uh, led to Arnhem. 10 miles north of uh, Nijmegen. Uh, When we jumped, when I hit the ground, the the, uh, member of my stick hit the ground before me. We were all loaded heavily with extra ammunition and other supplies, and he hit the ground awkwardly and fell against his entrenching tool and broke his uh, femur and also the handle of the entrenching tool. So he was my first casualty. And uh, once I gave him a shot of morphine to ease his pain, I went looking for the medical bundle and found found it, opened it up, and got a, a steel splint and brought it back to, uh, to the site where he uh, was injured and uh, applied it, and I had to give him another shot of morphine to ease all the pain. And uh, I had been trained to to set a bone, but I'd never actually set one. And uh, I remembered every step and 
cut his leg within the steel splint and started to applying uh, uh, traction. And I heard the thunk that I was told that I would hear, and I knew the bone was set. And so I mobilized the leg throughout the, the length of the splint, got him on a stretcher, and we took him nearby to a Dutch home that uh, we left him with the people overnight and picked him up the next day. And he he was fine after that. So you saved his life. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. And and talk about these packs. So you jumped, and then your pack jump was was uh, came down separately, right? So you had to find your medical pack. Repeat that, please. I'm oh, having... No problem, John. You're doing just great. So your medical pack, they you would jump, and then your supply packs sometimes would be uh, come down separately, right? Oh, yeah, we had all kinds of bundles dropping down. Both uh, the medical bundle was on its own parachute. And uh, and there were a lot of heavier, heavier arms and equipment that came down also. Now, when you were uh, helping this uh, young GI who had broken his leg, were you guys under fire at any time? Uh, there was some uh, small arms fire, yes. Okay. And it, was it common that you would jump during the day, or would it normally be night jumps? It seems like you'd almost be sitting ducks during the day. It seems that nighttime would be a better time to jump because that way the enemy could not see you. Well, you, you drop down in the, in the uh, nighttime and you run into a fiasco like Normandy. Uh, you, it's hard to assemble the troops in the nighttime. Oh, yeah. Okay. I do recall hearing that for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, Margaret Garden, what was what was the big picture? What were you guys trying to accomplish with Margaret Garden? Essentially, we, we were trying to get a, a, a path all the way into the north, part of uh, Holland in order to invade Germany from the northern side. That was Montgomery's idea, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. the British general who was, in, who was uh, in charge of that procedure. The history that I've seen on it was that he pushed it too much. I think this was the movie A Bridge Too Far. Yes. Yes, he, it was ill-conceived. Uh, It was all right as far as the American troops were concerned, but the British troops who landed in in, uh, Arnhem landed to the north of Arnhem, and the bridge was to the south of Arnhem. And they divided up their troops into three parts, three columns, and uh, each was going to take a chance on getting there, and only one arrived. The other two couldn't make it. And besides that, uh, two uh, Panzer divisions were there that uh, were not known until we got there, until the British got there. And so uh, it was it was overall an overall planned fiasco in Arnhem, my opinion. Yeah, and many of the British troops were killed there, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they suffered terrible casualties. Yeah. Okay, so you, you've you jumped into Market Garden, and you said the Americans, their plan was, was much better conceived than what had happened to the British. You have yeah. assisted your first uh, injury. Uh, what happens from there, John Coates? Well, from after after we uh, after the fighting became static, we stayed along. You know, the British wanted the Americans there as long as possible, and we didn't leave there until the latter part of November. And uh, when we did, we trucked down to uh, the area of uh, Reims, France. Uh, our regiment was situated around Soissons, and we were there just a few weeks. 
and uh, then the uh, Battle of the Bulge started. The Germans broke through uh, through the Hurtgen Forest. Okay. And tell me about the Battle of the Bulge. I've heard so many different stories about, you know, what had happened with the 82nd and the 101st. So tell us about the Battle of the Bulge. Well, uh, the uh, 101st, of course, stayed at Bastogne, and they defended Bastogne because it was a uh, a uh, road center, and the Germans had to take Bastogne in order to continue their push. And since the uh, the uh, 101st stopped them, they couldn't move further. And uh, to the north, uh, the 82nd moved into the uh, Somme River area, and uh, that was St. Beth, Malmody, Ville uh, Somme, uh, uh, Dumont. Whole time, these were t- the towns I'm familiar with, and I was involved with. And the the 508's uh, role was to protect Villesomme and Thierdemont, and uh, provide a path for the uh, our armored divisions that were fighting the uh, Germans at Saint Beth until they the they ran out of ammunition and uh, and fuel and uh, would retreat back over a protected bridge in Vilsam. And uh, at that point, uh, once all of the uh, armor got over the Somme River, then uh, the 508 would uh, pull back. They were in a 10-mile salient, you know, surrounded on three sides. They had to move back to straighten their lines, and that was on Christmas Eve. That would be the 24th of December of 44. And uh, we got into prepared positions in a little town called Erie, 10 miles back to straighten out the lines. And uh, the German SS made contact with us about 3.30 in the morning. And uh, after that battle, we didn't see any more uh, SS troops. We blooded them pretty good. And uh, by that time also, they were running out of fuel for their tanks. And uh, we found out after we went into attack after the first of the year, there were Tiger tanks in the roads out of fuel, with with no damage, they just abandoned them because they they could no longer drive them. Well, and John Coates, that had really been a strategy throughout the war. Like our bombers, I mean, they started early trying to get over to Germany to bomb their uh, both their ammunition uh, arsenals as well as their their fuel. Um, uh, places where they had all the fuel. And so that had really been a strategy. And so that's my understanding. That's why Hitler, you know, made this last big push at Battle of the Bulge because things were getting uh, pretty stark there. And uh, uh, so it seems like it had been a real successful, although we we lost so many airmen, so many men, uh, you know, to that. But it was overall a successful strategy to go after their fuel um, areas. Well, it was bad strategy on Hitler's part because he was using his reserve to attack through the Battle of the Bulge. He had no reserves left. That was his last chance, and he failed. He wanted to take Antwerp to cut, Antwerp to cut off uh, the northern troops from the southern troops and, uh, and uh, prevent uh, the Americans from using Antwerp as a... Uh, to bring in more equipment and men. You know, John Coates, when we were in at Normandy, uh, there was a group of Brits that were also there from Normandy. And the four D-Day vets that we talked with, they said the Brits were really, really good fighters. However, 
they really followed orders. Maybe they didn't, you know, do as much critical thinking, think outside the box. They were good fighters. But there was something unique about the Americans. And to hold at Bastogne and also what you guys did with 101st, if you guys had not been successful, then Hitler probably would have gotten to Antwerp, gotten to Antwerp and would have been able to refuel his tanks. Uh, yes or no? Well, I, I, I lost. I lost you on that one. Oh, okay. okay. No problem. We'll try it one more time. I'm, uh, I'll go a little bit slower on this. Um, the, the Brits uh, certainly suffered significant losses at Market Garden. Uh, but I submit to you that there's a little different fighting mentality between the Americans and the British, the Americans that held at Bastogne, uh, you guys with the 101st. What is unique about Americans? That's a good question. I can only answer for the airborne, but uh, we were we not only volunteered, but we were weeded out from the get-go. We only consisted of those that really wanted to be there. And uh, there's another point, too, I'd like to make at this time. Okay. It's been established statistically that uh, if the uh, people, the uh, soldiers in the airborne, you can expect 96% of them to fire their weapons, you know, as required. The, a good regular infantry division is expected to be uh, 12% efficient. In other words, 12, 12 out of 100 would be firing their weapons effectively. This is a statistical fact based on the amount of ammunition that was expended in the divisions. Wow. So the bottom line to that is... <laughs> I mean, you do the you do the math that makes the uh, airborne division that many times more efficient and effective. Wow! Hey, so John Coates, you've been back to Europe, haven't you? I've been back. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was there, of course, in '44. I I went for the 50th anniversary. I went to Normandy, Belgium, and Holland on that trip. And uh, I went in uh, 2014 to the 70th anniversary of Market Garden, and then the 73rd and 74th. And I plan on going on the 75th this coming September. Now that is going to be a really big deal. And John Coates, what I found was absolutely astounding is how the people of Normandy uh, and also Holland and Belgium, they revere you guys. You guys are like rock stars. They And they still teach the stories in their their schools about what you guys did. You, um, I mean, they still are grateful to you when you go back there. So what is one of the big experiences or most memorable experiences you have had going back to Europe? What do I remember about them? Oh, I, I love the people. I love the children. We always sit in with the children and they ask. They ask questions. And their favorite question was, were you scared? And what do you say? I said, of course. <laughs> of, of course, of course. Okay. Well, John Coast, let's go to break. Uh, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. This is the World War II project that you're listening to. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of the stories are there, as well as I'm the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as, uh, also. Talking with John Coates, World War II combat medic. Uh, we'll go to break and be right back. Okay, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. That's where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. This show precipitated from a trip that I took with a group in 2016 with four D-Day veterans. Uh, returned realizing that these stories need to be told. So honored to be on the line right now with John Coates, World War II combat medic. He jumped in at Market Garden and then was also involved at Battle of the Bulge. 
So, John Coates, this has really been a great interview. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say about uh, the Battle of Market Garden, what you guys did? Is there any other experiences that are coming to mind? Uh, no, it's the, uh, the, I don't think as much about Operation Market Garden as I do the Battle of the Bugs. The, uh, everything about the bugs was worse, including the weather. Yeah, my understanding, it was bitterly, bitterly cold at Battle of the Bulge. Did you, some of the guys didn't have the right equipment? How about you? Did you have warm enough clothes? Uh, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't. Compl- I wasn't that bad off uh, with clothing and so forth. It was absolutely cold, but nothing froze. Okay, that's that's good. John, as I was doing a little bit of research, I saw that, uh, you know, one of the trips that you had taken back to uh, Europe had been noted. But there was a story about a Medal of Honor recipient who you knew, uh, First Sergeant Leonard A. Funk, Jr. Uh, I was with, I was there the whole time when that happened. Okay. Can you share that story? Ma'am? Yes. Uh, Would you like, can you share that story, uh, John? Okay. Well, uh. Let me start a little bit before that, and I'll walk you through that event. Uh, What happened after we went into attack and retook Tio Dupont and Bielsom, we held our lines for a while and then moved into further attack and went through uh, uh, forests, fire breaks, waist-deep snow, headed southeast uh, towards Germany. And uh, I, I didn't know it at the time, but the, uh, the objective was a, a village called Holzheim. And uh, after a couple of ni- days and nights of wading through the snow, we came up on the, uh, the uh, road leading into uh, Holzheim. We could see it in the distance, about a mile. And a an, an American uh, artillery spotter, Piper Cub, flew over and dropped a message, and uh, it was picked up. And shortly after that, we started lining up and headed to- towards Holzheim. And uh, there is an army picture of that scene taken by the uh, Piper Cub pilot in the. Uh, American Army archives, and uh, there's a picture of it in one of uh, Phil Thordike's uh, books on the 82nd Division, uh, that picture. And also in that picture is a picture of the uh, uh, aftermath of the incident with uh, Sergeant Funk. But uh, let me back up a little bit. we went in. We went into. Uh, I was told I normally went with company headquarters, but uh, but uh, company headquarters was leading the charge, and they, I was the last medic, and they didn't want me uh, injured because they'd need me later. And uh, so they put me to the rear of the column, and uh, so from there I. Uh, once the end of the column started to move, uh, uh, a mortar shell landed about 30 yards to my left, and then the next one landed right at my feet, and oh it was God. a dud. Oh. And uh, I just thought that this was going to be my lucky day, and it actually was. And there was no more incidents for me moving into into Holzheim. And once I got there, a trooper was limping back, and uh, I, I ran to meet him, and he had been shot in the uh, thigh. It was a clean wound. Uh, he, he, he didn't hit bone, and there was an entrance and exit wound. And I was li- uh, we were both kneeling in the street uh, while I repaired the wound after giving him morphine. And I uh, heard a bullet whiz past my helmet. I flinched a little bit, but I thought it was a stray bullet, and I kept working. And about 15 seconds later, another one whizzed past my helmet. And uh, 
the company commander, Captain Dietrich, says he realized a sniper was shooting at me. And he says, I see him. He was about 75 yards away. And uh, Captain Dietrich took uh, aim with his uh, M1 and with one shot picked him out of the tree. And that took care of that. And uh, after that, uh, I was they had captured a German doctor and uh, they told me to uh, take him into one of the one of the uh, houses, which I did, where we, we might have need for him later. And as it turns out, uh, uh, everything went smoothly until a German patrol entered Holzheim uh, uh, from the same direction that we went in, and they had sheet on their uniforms, so they weren't identifiable you know from a distance and when they moved up close we had uh, a young trooper by the name of street supposed to be in guard you know rear guard and he mistook them for americans he spoke to them in english and they killed him he was the only one killed that day and uh, then the uh, german patrol from there uh, moved in and the prisoners were being assembled on the right side between two buildings, and I was in the first building, and uh, my first uh, sense of something going wrong was a lot of uh, a small arm fire, but I recognized it as American American fire because of, you know of the uh, rate of fire, and uh, when it quietened down, I went to see what had happened, and uh, uh, Sergeant Funk had. We were uh, gathering prisoners there, and there were three troopers guarding them. And of course, the German patrol took them o- took over the three troopers, got the drop on them. And Sergeant Funk came back to see how things were going. And this German officer saw him with his Tommy gun slung over his shoulder, and told him in English to drop the uh, the Tommy gun slowly. And Sergeant Funk had told us that he would never be captured alive. And uh, so with one move, he took the, the Tommy gun off his shoulder with his finger on the trigger, and he killed the German officer before the German officer could pull the trigger on his uh, Schmeiser machine pistol. And uh, the, the three troopers got the drop on the rest of the German patrol that were only ones that were armed. And then... All of the prisoners and the the patrol tried to scatter, tried to run in all directions, and they were all killed within within 75 feet of uh, where they were were being collected. And uh, for that action, uh, Sergeant Funk uh, received the Medal of Honor. And uh, I was with Funk that eve that night. And all he did was sit on his uh, in his chair with his elbows on his knees and his face in his hands. He wouldn't talk to anybody. He wouldn't even take an aspirin. It really hit him. But he was good by the next morning. You know, as I was looking over some things, your description of Sergeant Funk was that he was humble, selfless, respected, first class. You know, I think, John Coates, those are words that, you know, at the end of the day, if people could say that about each of us, that would be a life well lived. Um, One other thing, it said that you had borrowed Funk's pistol at one point in time. What's the story on that? Uh, Is that true in some of the Uh, things that I'd read, borrowing Funk's pistol? Oh, yes. He loaned me a pistol. I I forget exactly when he loaned it to me, but... I, I believe he loaned it to me just before, you know, when he told me to guard the uh, doctor, the German doctor. Okay. Okay, that is quite the quite the story. And m- being a Medal of Honor recipient, is uh, it is a pretty amazing thing. Uh, anything else that you'd like to say about Sergeant Funk? Sergeant Funk, he was a great guy. He was, he was short. He was a short individual, uh, five, six or so. But, and you'd think that a man, a smaller man, would be feisty. Not so. He was a very gentle person, but everybody listened to him. Everybody had respect for him, including the company commander. And uh, 
In fact, I heard, this is hearsay, when the company commander was introduced to him, uh, Fong told him, says, I'm here to protect you. And he did. He he, he looked after his uh, his uh, company commander. Well, he looked after all the men, too. In fact, when they brought uh, provisions, you know, cigarettes, candy, uh, all kinds of notions of that type, uh, there would be a box at the uh, wherever the company headquarters was, and Funk would never touch it until everybody had gotten his share. Very generous person. Wow. Did you stay in contact with him after the war? No, I didn't, and I'm sorry I, I'm sorry I didn't, because I had the opportunity. Uh, when I got through, uh, when I went out of the Army, I went back to school and graduated uh, from college and went to work for Westinghouse, and my first assignment was in Pittsburgh, and that's where Sergeant Funk uh, resided. Unfortunately, Sergeant Funk uh, uh, didn't live, but several years after that, he died of cancer. Uh, incidentally, while he was in the Army, his high school sweet, sweetheart married someone else, and uh, Sergeant Funk had not been married. And in the interim, her first husband died. And the families got the two back together, and they did marry after uh, Sergeant Funk got back to Pittsburgh. And uh, at at the college, uh, at the uh, regimental reunions, uh, his wife Gertrude attended after Funk's death, and she and I became good friends also. And she, of course, she died later also. Okay. John Coates, fascinating story. Uh, we've got about four minutes left. Is there any other story that you would like to make sure our listeners hear? Any other stories? Yes, I was just thinking of, of several, but uh, I think maybe the one that I'd like to tell is the one with uh, one of our medics called Reinhardt in Holland and uh, Sergeant Funk. Uh, Reinhardt, uh, well, first of all, one of our medics was quite mechanically minded, and he took two wrecked British motorcycles and made one out of it. And Reinhardt borrowed it to go back and forth to C Company from the aid station. And uh, so uh, somewhere along the line, uh, Reinhardt liberated a bottle of Dutch gin, and he and uh, Sergeant Funk consumed it uh, in the company area, and they got quite happy, and they started riding this motorcycle on a dike and uh, in, front, in plain sight of the Germans, and they sent an aerial burst, 88, towards them. He went past them but exploded close enough for them to lose uh, control of the motorcycle, and all three went into the canal. And this was in uh, mid-November, quite cold, and only the two men survived. The motorcycle was probably still there. And uh, I guess that's the, the end of the story. Yeah, well, did you guys find quite a bit of humor in that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, one night, uh, Reinhardt and I rode that motorcycle into Nijmegen, and uh, it, it was so boring there. Everybody was having a good time, and the, and the, the music play, being played was Hold That Tiger. And I, I couldn't stand it. I had heard it too much already. So we went on back. It was a misty night. And we were on this road that was under construction and had these steel sidebars on the, you know, mm-hmm. denoting the uh, limits of the road width and so forth that are driven, you know, steel steel posts. And uh, I don't know how Reinhardt saw as well as he did but he got too close to one of these steel bars. It caught under my knee and flipped me off of the uh, motorcycle. And I went flying through the air over the bank. 
and when I landed, I landed on my shoulders with my head forward. And Reinhardt was asking, says, Coach, are you hurt? Are you hurt? And I couldn't answer him because my the way I was stuck in the mud, I couldn't open my mouth. And finally I twisted myself loose and told him I was okay, and we went on that way. And uh, that was the end of that. Oh, my gosh, that's quite a story. So, John Coates, uh, in, uh, do you have one more quick story that you'd like to tell? No, that was uh, not, not offhand. No. Okay. Okay. So, John Coates, World War II veteran, um, what would you say to the children in America today? You've talked with a lot of the, the children in France and in Belgium and in Holland. What would you say to the children in America? Well, I... W- I would be careful telling my stories because uh, I don't like to talk about the, uh, you know, the gory stuff. And uh, the other thing, I don't like to talk it to anybody except those that are, are willing to ask questions, you know, listen and ask questions, because otherwise it would be boring. Uh, I have been interviewed several times, and I have uh, uh, some CDs on the story. And uh, I had one teacher that has asked me to present this material to her class. I think she teaches sixth grade, and uh, she uh, has been pretty busy, and uh, we've never really got it done. But she does have a copy of, uh, of this CD, which... Uh, you know, would give her an idea of what I would be talking about, but I haven't. She hadn't gotten back to me. Well, I am convinced that we need to make sure that we uh, get these stories, that we tell these stories, and then we teach these stories to our children. So, John Coates, w- when you see the American flag, what goes through your mind? When I see the flag, yes. Oh, oh, I'm very proud of the flag, and I resent anybody that defaces it, no matter how. I, I consider myself as a patriot, always a patriot, and uh, I think that most of us don't appreciate our country near as much as we should. I think a lot of us sh- uh, should, that feel otherwise, should travel abroad and see how other people are living compared with us. We, sh- we should be very appreciative of what we have and our forefathers that set us up this way. And uh, we are exceptional because of the uh, Constitution. No question in my mind about that. It's a way of life. It's a culture. Well, totally agree with you on that, John Coates. Uh, the, thank you so much for this interview uh, with me, Kim Munson, with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. God bless you, John Coates. Thank you for what you have done and what you are doing. And uh, again, God bless you. Thank you, and you're welcome. Okay. This is the uh, Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks signing off. Be sure and tune in, same time, same place, next week. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.